We're in Luke chapter 1 this morning, verses 46 to 54. My name is Randy Armstrong. I'm a member here at Creekside. This is the first Sunday of Advent, and this Advent season, we're going to be looking at the four songs. Well, they call them songs. I'm not sure why, because none of the four say that they sang them, but I still haven't figured that one out. Everybody calls them songs, so we're going to call them songs. If you look in chapters 1 and 2 of your Bible of Luke, you'll see it's it, all four of them are written in poetry, so you, they kind of stand out in the chapters there. But we're going to look at those four songs during the four Sundays of Advent. We're going to skip over Christmas Eve. The kids are going to do that Sunday, and then we'll do the fourth song the Sunday after Christmas, which is kind of appropriate because the song occurs eight days after Jesus was born, so it's, it's pretty close in there. But this morning we're going to consider Mary's declaration when she arrived at her relative Elizabeth's house. Um, it's called the Magnificent by many, and I learned this week why it's called that, and that's because that's the first word in the song if you sing it in Latin, so... That's why it's called the Magnificat, because that's the first word of the song. So whatever, that's got nothing to do with the rest of this message, but it's out there now. But anyway, we're starting Advent season, and there's a whole lot going on every Christmas season. You know that, and the more kids you have, the more activities there are. But we're just inundated with all these activities and songs and commercials and solicitations for different things during this Season And I thought it'd be good for us as we look at these songs that we ask ourselves, how does Christmas apply in our society today? Now, we've sung and celebrated what God has done for us in the incarnation of Christ for us as individuals. And that is the starting point. We can't get any farther than that until we get to that point where we recognize our need for a Savior and God's provision of that Savior in the perfect man, Jesus, who lived a perfect life and then took our sins upon himself so that God could forgive those sins by him paying for them. And then we have a new life, and his Holy Spirit comes and dwells in us. But I want us to see this morning, especially in looking at Mary's song, that Mary is preoccupied with something beyond just individual salvation. This is a global declaration that she's going to make. In fact, I was struck again this morning as I'm reading through the whole story again that there's only two little tiny references directly to forgiveness of sins in this whole story that's told about what happened to Mary. Even Gabriel, when he announces um, the, her, the fact that she's going to give birth to Jesus, she uses his name Jesus, but nowhere in his declarations to her does he say specifically that he will forgive his people from his sins. Now, Gabriel does do that when he talks to Matthew, or to Joseph. He tells Joseph to take her as his wife. And then there's one little reference in her song to God as her Savior. But as we look through this song, and I invite you to go through that with me. In just a minute, we'll read it, and then we'll walk through it. Try to see and get a feeling for what Mary's preoccupation is and what is making her so excited and enthusiastic about what God has done for her. So keep that in mind. But as we, as we look at 
at this Christmas season, one of the things we can do is ask ourselves, how does Christmas, how does the birth of Christ, how does the incarnation of Christ affect how we look at current events in this world? Not just what's happening to me, but how does what we celebrate during Advent affect our perspective on Ukraine, on Palestine, on other issues in our society in America, and then we could list Taiwan and all these other global issues that are going on. Does Christmas make a difference? Not Christmas itself, but what we celebrate at Christmas. And the second thing I think it'd be good for us to ask ourselves as we look at Mary's song, and I think it'll be easy to do that once we get through looking at it, is do I see myself as part of something bigger than myself? I mean, it is, as I said before, it starts with us. It starts with us as individuals. But I'd ask you, are you a me-evangelical or a we-evangelical? <laughs> or maybe a he-evangelical. If you're going to pick one, pick a he-evangelical or a we-evangelical. But don't be a me-evangelical, which is, Jesus died for me. He saved me from my sins. Someday I'm going to heaven. And that's the gospel in its fullest. And you can have that for you too. But my whole perspective is how does it affect me? Now it does affect us individually. Praise God for that. But I think the passion of God and the work of the Holy Spirit in his people as we get into the word is we see that we're, something so, we're part of something so much bigger than ourselves and if we really get a hold of that, our identity becomes who we are in the big picture. We, we, we become to take our value and our, our worth and our self-image, if you want to call it that, out of how we fit into the big picture. And the most exciting thing in that context, as we look at Mary, is Mary was a nobody in that society. We have to understand the context if we're going to understand the impact of her song. And so just, I want to set a little bit of the context before we look at the scripture. I promise you I won't go over this morning, but I think I want to lay the groundwork because I think it's really important for us to understand where this is coming from. A lot of times we, you know, we just sang the Magnificat, but we're singing it in a 21st century context in a pretty cool place to live, and things are pretty good. I mean, yeah, we might be sad or something, or we might have a few difficulties, but things are pretty good. Mary sang this song in a country that was under the domination of the Romans. It was a place where you had no rights whatsoever, and especially if you were a woman. And some have said that because she was so young, and because she was uneducated, and because she was from such a podunk city as Nazareth, she couldn't have written something like this. But let's think a little bit about the context here. I want you to consider her community. Her people were a people of the book. She grew up in a group of people where scripture was recited and sung and talked about every day of the week and especially on Sabbath. And even though she didn't have the right to study, she would hear 
her family members speaking it. She would hear it in Shabbat. She would hear it in the synagogue. She would, as she listened. And so her life was just permeated with the word of God. It was woven into her daily life and speech. We also know she was a, a young woman of integrity because twice when Gabriel appears to her, she talks about, Gabriel says that she is favored by God. Now there's a reason for that. It is grace, but still God recognized that this was a young woman that would accomplish his purposes. She was a woman who thought deeply. We know that because of other scriptures later on where things happen and Mary pondered those things in her heart, scripture says. More than once it says that she took the events and she digested them internally. So she was a person who thought. And she also knew who she was, and we'll come back to this later, but twice before, when Gabriel finishes talking to her, she says, I am the servant of the Lord. This was how this young girl saw herself. And in the Magnificat, we'll see in the song a little bit later, she refers to herself as his servant. So here is this 14-year-old, and we'll pause here just a minute, and I'm not, I won't embarrass you, I promise you, but if you're a boy or girl, if you are 14, 15, or 16, would you stand for just a second? I promise I won't embarrass you. More than just the fact that everybody's looking at you and you're standing up. Okay? Thank you. You can sit down. Consensus is that's how old Mary was when she composed this song. She was between 14 and 16. So she wasn't an old person who had gone through everything in life and had all these experiences. She was a young person who, over the short time that she had had up to this point, had so absorbed and digested and brought into her being who she was as a child of God, as a member of the nation of Israel, as a, a, a descendant of Abraham, that she was able to declare what we're going to read in just a moment. Also, don't forget that she had four days between the time Gabriel told her she was going to be the mother of the Messiah to the time she walked through Zacharias's door into the house and Elizabeth greeted her. It says she got up quickly after uh, Gabriel gave, told her what was going to happen and she took off for Zacharias' house and the journey was probably four days long on foot. She didn't have a, a Walkman. She didn't have a cell phone. She didn't have an iPad. She didn't have anything she could look up or anything like that. There was no account she could access. She had four days as she traveled to think about what just had happened to her. And so as we come to this song that we're going to look at, this is the fruit of the distillation of that young life, of that serious life, and of those four days of meditation as she comes to Elizabeth's house. I love what Lawrence Richards says in his commentary on the New Testament. He takes Mary as an example and says, if we expect to be used by God, we need not be great in the eyes of the world. And I would say we don't even have to be a certain age. But we must saturate ourselves with the scripture till the thoughts and concepts revealed by God become an integral part of our hearts and our minds. And this is what had happened to Mary. One, at least one commentator has identified at least 12 references to Old Testament passages in these few verses that we're going to look at. She was just 
that scripture had just permeated her being. And so this is an encouragement whether you're 14 or 40 or 84 to really let this example challenge us to really be people of the book. She was a part of a people of the book. And it's out of this God-saturated life in the midst of this foreign occupation that this young woman from a poor town who lived a poor life declares what we're going to read here. So if you'll stand with me, we'll read. And if I had thought about it earlier, the thought just came to me, and I won't do it now, but it would have been great to have a 15-year-old read this, but an old man's going to read it instead. But in your mind, here's Mary, this 15-year-old young woman, saying in response to what Elizabeth has said, Mary said, verse 46, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, you know what we need this morning. You have what we need this morning. You give us what we need through your word, by your spirit. May you show us your son, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Now, just a quick word about Mary, and then we'll go on to the, the passage there about our attitude toward Mary. We don't worship her, okay? We don't pray to her. She is not our hope. She is not divine. But... Having said that, like any example from Scripture of a person who puts their faith in God and trusts Him, and their story is recorded in Scripture, we can learn from them. We can learn things about ourselves. We can see things in ourselves that God might want to accomplish. And so in that sense, we do appreciate who she is, but we don't worship her and we don't pray to her. So here's Mary. What's the first thing Mary does? She, she, walks, into, she walks into Zachariah's house, and Elizabeth, <laughs> she says in a loud voice, can you imagine walking into somebody's house and your relative who's probably, Elizabeth's probably in her 50s, early, late 40s, early 50s. I didn't have all the women who were in their late 40s, early 50s stand up. <laughs> I didn't think that would go over too well. But, but Elizabeth, or Mary walks in and the baby, and Elizabeth's six months pregnant, the baby, John the Baptist, the somersaults there, and Mary, by the Spirit, announces this blessing on Mary. Or Elizabeth, by the Holy Spirit, blesses Mary. And this is Mary's response to that blessing. And look at the very first thing she does, and I want you to notice this. Mary, where Mary puts her focus, the first thing she does is worship. Verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Her gaze is upward. Her focus is on who is doing this, 
not on how she's experiencing what he's doing. Now, she didn't have experiences, but you'll notice she doesn't say, when Elizabeth says, oh, blessed are you, she says, oh, I know. Man, when Gabriel showed up, it was such an exciting experience, and my heart was racing. She didn't go into all this detail about all the things she felt. Now, she may have done that with Elizabeth later on. It wouldn't surprise me. She was there for three months. But it's interesting to me that her initial response to this blessing that Elizabeth pronounces says, my soul magnifies the Lord. Now, what do we mean when we say, my soul magnifies the Lord? Well, a magnifying glass, we'd say it makes things bigger. Well, it doesn't really make things bigger, but it makes things look bigger. It clarifies things. It makes things more obvious or easier to see. And that's what Mary's saying here. It sound, it's, it's, it's kind of a spiritual word that we use, but I think we can remove kind of the fancy spirituality of it and just say basically, Mary's just saying, I want, I'm going to make it so God can be more clearly seen. My soul magnifies the Lord. One, one person defined it as making something conspicuous. That's what magnify means. I'm going to make God more conspicuous. And in Mary's experience, that's what she's going to do in this song that we look at. She's going to start after she says that initial thing, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. She's going to talk in the next couple of verses about what he's done for her. And that's only natural. The Psalms are full of that as well. But I want you to notice she doesn't stop there. After that, she's going to go on and she's going to make general declarations about God and who he is and what he's done. So it's not just by saying my soul magnifies the Lord that she makes him conspicuous. She goes on and actually declares who he is in detail. And that's also just kind of a bit of an aside, but that's kind of a way you can discern between an okay worship song and a really good worship song. It's one thing to sing, we love you, we worship you, we praise you. That's good, and we should. But a song that really magnifies the Lord, by the time you're done, you see more of who God is. And we sing about who He is and what He's done for us and what He's done for others and about His character. And it's not a question of old stuff, old songs or new songs. It's just a question of content. Where saying we magnify the Lord in and of itself is a good start, but the actual magnification happens when we detail who he is and detail what he's done and declare what he's done. And we can do that in song together and we can do that one-on-one. -on -one. Hopefully, you know people in your lives that when you're through talking with them, brothers or sisters, when you're through talking with them, you have a deeper appreciation of who God is. You might be impressed with who they are, but ultimately, if they're really magnifying the Lord in their lives, you walk away from them looking to the Lord and saying, He is a great God. They serve a great God. And Mary finds her joy in Him. She's happy about what God has done, but she says, My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Her joy is actually found in the person who is the giver of all that she receives. And that's different from a person whose joy is in what God gives and not in, ultimately, who He is. And she refers to God here in this passage as her Savior in verse 47. Now, I don't know how much Mary understood of the gospel. Aaron reminded us this morning, we're on the other side of the Advent. We're on the, we've got the whole New Testament. We have those 
treatises of, like Romans and other books in the New Testament that explain to us what it means for, as, that God is our Savior in the fullest extent. And Mary was a person of faith, so she was looking to God for her justification. But I want you to notice in this passage, she's also especially thinking about God as her Savior in the sense of the one who's going to deliver her and her people from this oppression that she's living under right now. Next week, when we look at Zechariah, he'll go into more detail about, focus more on the forgiveness as well as the deliverance from the oppressors of the nation of Israel. But Mary's really focused in on God as her Savior and deliverer in the situation in which she finds herself right now. Let's look at what Mary declares about what God's done for her here in verses 48 and 49. How does Mary see herself? I've already mentioned this once, but she defines herself in terms of her relationship with God. If I were to ask you in a sentence, tell me who you are, what would you say? Think about that. Go home and think about it. I'm chewing on that too. What is your essential identity? Mary's essential identity was, I'm a servant of the Lord. Now, I believe Mary's identity was that before Gabriel came to her. I think that's just how she saw herself. Podunk town, pick the, pick the most podunk town in Yamhill County. There's your identity there. Mary came from a place kind of like that. I didn't want to offend anybody by picking a name, but... <laughs> but that's where she came from, uneducated. She was poor. We know she was poor. We know by the sacrifice, even when she married Joseph, the sacrifice they gave when Jesus was circumcised at the temple, they gave the provision of Deuteronomy. Moses had given in Deuteronomy for those who couldn't afford a lamb, they would just give two birds, and that's, that's what they did. So we know they were poor. But Mary's identity is she's a servant of the Lord, and notice what she says in verse 8. She's magnifying the Lord. Her spirit's rejoicing in God. Why? And there's three fours that come in these two verses. The first one is, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. I'm his servant. Why am I magnifying God and rejoicing in him? He sees me. He saw me. Now think about that. The creator of the universe sent, I don't, see, I don't know about, I don't do studying on angels. I think Gabriel was pretty high up in the hierarchy. I think he was number one. He sent Gabriel to me to give me a place in his plan for the redemption of Israel and the Messiah. She sees herself in her humble estate. And the word there is not her humiliation there. It's just this idea of someone who was on the bottom of the social scale on the bottom of the economic scale, that was her humble estate. We're going to see that repeated when she generalizes the truth about God later on in her song. She's going to come back to that same phrase. But her, she magnifies the Lord because God sees the little people. God saw me. I'm a nobody. I'm his servant, but nobody, nobody else is seeing me as anybody. But God saw me. And I will praise him because the creator of the universe sees the littlest 
most insignificant person. And I want to encourage you this morning. You may think nobody cares. Nobody cares about your life. Nobody understands you. I want you to know that the creator of the universe sees you. And he cares about you. Now, you won't get Mary's job. That was a once, one and done thing. That's not going to happen again. But there's a place. His intent is that everyone glorify him in the place where God puts him or her. So Mary sees herself as a humble servant of the Lord. Mary also sees herself in her place in history. It's interesting, the second four there. For behold, now, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Now, we could take that as kind of a prideful thing, but I don't think it is. I think Mary's just saying, I'm rejoicing in the Lord because he gave me a place in his plan. And from now on, whenever anybody says something about Mary, they're going to say, oh, she was the, the mother of the Messiah. She got a good part in the play. And they'll call me blessed. But I want you to notice that it's not just my neighbor's or my friends will call me blessed. She sees that the implication of what God has done for her is going to go on and on and on. And we're going to see her referred to generations another, again later. And then at the, the end, the very last word of the whole song is forever. She sees her temporal life in the context of eternity and the plan of God. The third four... He who has, is mighty has done great things for me. NASB, I think, says the mighty one has done great things for me. I can't help but wonder if she's thinking back to Gabriel's announcement because when Mary said, well, how do I know this is going to take place? And Gabriel says, among other things, that the power of the, the, of the Holy Spirit will overshadow her. Well, it's the same word there, that power back then. I, I don't know if she's thinking back to a few days ago. The mighty one, the powerful one, has done great things. But what are the great things? I, I'm a kind of a literalist when I read Scripture. And I, okay, great things. Let's see if I can name them. And I had trouble coming up with a list. She got to see Gabriel. That was kind of a, you know, not everybody gets to see Gabriel. That's a great thing. She, got a, she had a place to go when she's kind of flustered about what Gabriel said, so she, had, she could go to Elizabeth's house. She's thankful for that. And maybe it's not supposed to be plural. The obvious intent of her declaration is, I get to be the mother of the Messiah. That is a great thing, and he has done it for me. I want you to notice in all of this section where she talks about what God has done for her, that the focus is on God, and not on her. She is the recipient. She doesn't say, because I've done this, or because I've done that, or because I've been such a good person. There's no sense of merit in her song at all. She's just magnifying the Lord for what he's done for her. Let that be an example for us. Let's cultivate that sense of wonder that God actually sees us and uses us in whatever form he sees us and uses us. Her social standing certainly wasn't better. That certainly wasn't one of the great things God had done. She didn't get a book deal. She didn't get to go on Oprah. She didn't get anything that, from a human standpoint, would be better for her. 
In fact, uh, her character was, was put in question and yet in the context of eternity, in the context of who she knew she was as a servant of the Lord, what God had done for her was a great thing. Even though, and you and I know the story, the rest of her life would have a lot of painful events. And we'll see that a little bit more prophesied when we get to the last week of the series. But Mary knows about her Lord. And that's, that's one of the things that struck me as I read through this. And sometimes if you take, take a scripture and print it out and use your highlighter, you can come up with all kinds of things that you didn't see but I was struck with how many different things about God Mary declares in this song. When she says, my soul magnifies the Lord, then she goes on and talks about all these different character aspects of the Lord. She calls him her Lord. She recognizes his authority over her life, but also as her Lord, he's her provider and her protector. He's her savior. We talked about that. He looks at her, he sees her, she knows that God sees her. And not just in the, you know, sometimes when you're a kid, it's like, God's watching you, God knows everything you do. That's not the context here. But God sees you, he knows, he cares. He sees every tear you shed. She refers to him as he who is mighty, or the mighty one. Now there's not even, they couldn't come up, commentators even can't come up with necessarily anything directly related to that out of the Old Testament. But Mary's making a declaration about the Mighty One that's going to come into play a little later on when she talks about what the Mighty One's going to do. And one of the things the Mighty One does is he brings the Mighty down from their thrones. So there's this sense that Mary says in her, in her song, she's so excited about the fact that God's going to fix all the things that are wrong in society. She says, holy is his name to finish her personal thanksgiving here in verse 49. Now, I've, I've read several commentaries and they, they give the standard response there to what that means about God's character and his perfection. And I, I don't want to minimize that at all. That's absolutely true. But as I read this thing that Mary's singing, or saying, whichever, what is that doing there in this passage? He's done great things for me, and holy is his name. I think, and I, I could be wrong, and you're intelligent people, uh, you can figure this out for yourself and check it out, because you should always check out what anybody tells you from the scriptures to see if it's really true in the scripture. But I think what Mary's saying is, in this context, he looked at my humble estate, He's given me a place in his plan that everybody's going to recognize for generations to come. In his power, he's done great things for me. And you don't mess with him. Holy is his name. His plan's going to take place. He's to be honored. Because other places in Scripture, when he talks about when people see the holiness of God, it's like mouth closed, face on the ground. God does whatever he wants because he's perfect. And we want him doing whatever he wants because he's the only one who does it right all the time. But I think in this case, Mary, I, I think, at least partly, Mary's concluding that part of her declaration, in effect, in saying, I am a lowly, lowly person, but the one whose name is perfectly holy, he has done this for me, so nobody can take it away from me. Nobody can question it. Nobody can put it in doubt. 
And I would just encourage you, you're not going to have Mary's job, but God has sent his son for you. He's given you the privilege of seeing yourself as who you are, as, as a sinner in need of a savior. He's taken your sin upon himself. God has given you his Holy Spirit when you repented and turned to him. Nobody can take that away from you. Holy is his name. He has looked upon your estate. He has given you a place in his plan. And nobody can shake that. Nobody can take it. And that's why part of the reason that Mary rejoices here. And then she moves on from there, from the, the, the specific personal part of it to the second part. She goes from that to his, verse 50, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. She's just spoken about how God has shown his mercy to her. And this word translated in, in the Old Testament is translated, at least in the ESV, by steadfast love. It's, it's this idea of God's unrelenting commitment to care for those who need care. But Mary's talked about his mercy to her and what he's done for her. Now she, said, now she goes to a general declaration, continuing to magnify the Lord. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And I, just, I mentioned earlier that Elizabeth was, we're not sure, but late 40s, early 50s. It, it's, Luke chapter 1 says she was advanced in years, whatever that means. <laughs> so she was getting up there. So she's of a gener different generation than Mary is. And this, is, this isn't thus saith the Lord, but I don't have any trouble at all seeing Mary in the midst of her joy looking at Elizabeth's bump because she was six months pregnant and saying, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Yes, he's blessed me, but Elizabeth, he's blessed you. And three months later, when Elizabeth gives birth, in verse 58, Elizabeth's neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. God shows mercy to those in every generation. And I would encourage us as a church to be intergenerational so that we can remind each other that God's mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. It never stops. It's been going since he clothed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and it'll go on till the day that the Lord returns and then throughout eternity. There was more than one generation in that home, and Mary realized that God was good to her because God is always good to those who fear him. That's who he is. She wasn't an exception. She got an exceptional job, as it were, but that was just because that was the place God chose for her. But God's that way with everyone who fears him. That doesn't mean who's afraid of him. It just means who respect him and do what he says. She goes on from that general statement about his mercy for those who fear him from generation to generation, and she goes through six or seven, depending on how you count them, phrases that start out, he has, meaning God has. And she's going to identify things that God has done. Now, not a lot of time here, so I'll try to wrap this up, but it's, it's in the past tense. 
But I think it's a prophetic past tense. The prophets in the Old Testament used to do that too. They would declare what God had done, but they were looking forward. But in their eyes, it had already happened. And I think that's what Mary's doing here. She's looking from Abraham's generation, she refers to him at the end of the song, all the way forward to herself and then forward to when her son, when he is fully in his reign, the things that he has done, and she talks about these things that he has done. There's going to be a social reversal that takes place. The proud are going to be scattered. The mighty will be removed from their thrones. The rich will be sent away hungry. But those who are humble will be lifted up. The hungry are going to be filled. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. I guess the thing I'd like for us to take away from this this morning is to see that our salvation is a, a wonderful thing that God has accomplished in his son. Mary gave birth to that son who lived his full life perfectly and then who died for us and God raised him from the dead as proof that he was the perfect human being, brought him back to heaven And then Jesus sent out his Holy Spirit to dwell in those who will admit their need and receive him and put their faith in him. But that's the the beginning. We're a part of something bigger than ourselves. Mary saw that. And I hope this, and I didn't didn't get into it. I talked too long at the beginning. I told Aaron, oh, it's going to be short, but I'm going to have to make it short now. (laughs) There is a, Christ has come once. And Aaron talked this morning about looking back on his coming. And we do look back on his coming, his first coming. But we look forward to his second coming. And we're going to find the fulfillment of these things that we read about in verses 52 and onward. We're going to find the full fulfillment of these things when Christ returns a second time and every injustice and every inequity And everything that's wrong in every part of our society will be made right. This isn't a call for us to fix it ourselves, though if God gives us a job to do, we should do it, whatever he calls us to do. But our hope is not that we're going to fix it. Our hope is that when he returns, he will make all of these things right. The proud will be scattered. Those who are proud in the thoughts of their hearts, he will scatter them. The mighty who give no acknowledgement of who God is, they will be cast down from their thrones. There were examples of that in the Old Testament, but the full realization of that is going to be when the Lord Jesus returns and every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. And I just hope this Christmas that we'll filter and think through all the things that are going on in our lives and ask ourselves if this helps us see the big picture so that Christmas becomes more than just a few weeks where we can kind of escape from reality and then come back to it in January, but that we'll realize that he sent his son through this poor, insignificant person to be the savior of the world, but also to be the king whose reign will never end. Aaron, you can come forward here and the worship team will close us in song, but I just invites you to consider the fact that he sees you this morning. If you have never 
put your faith in him. We're available to talk with you to see what that might look like for you. But I would encourage you to realize wherever you're at in your life that you're not a forgotten person. Even if Creekside has failed you and we're human, we might. God knows your situation. He cares. And look to him and realize that you're part of something way bigger than yourself. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would take your word and open our eyes and make it work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.